welcome to BZ Listening. I am your host, BZ Douglas, and uh, welcome back, or for the first time, to my little variety show podcast, where I feature interviews with grassroots artists, activists, journalists, and whatever interesting people that I've been uh, fortunate enough to cross paths with. And this week, I am talking with Cal Folger Day. Uh, she's a singer-songwriter that's a bit hard to pin down genre-wise, but if I had to slap a label on her, I'd probably go with Avant Folk, which is uh, similar to Cutlery, uh, a band I had on uh, earlier in the year, who I highly recommend you check out. Uh, Cal is based out of Dublin, Ireland, but I met her back in 2010 when we were both living in New York City. So today we chat a bit about her early days in the thrall of classical music and, and what kind of broke her out of uh, that genre a bit more. Her time in NYC, the differences between Ireland and the U.S., and most importantly, her latest endeavor, writing and performing verbatim pop operas, which I didn't even know was a thing until I started doing background for this interview. Uh, I highly recommend checking out an audio documentary by The Lyric Feature. It chronicles the process of Cal creating one of these operas, um, The Woods and Grandma, and it's based on stories of Lady Gregory Yates and George Bernard Shaw, uh, as told by the Lady Gregory's granddaughters, Anne and Catherine. It's it's a really interesting project, and it's really cool how they how they tell the story of its production. So for links to that documentary and, and other work by Cal, check out uh, the episode description on your podcast app, or you can visit bzlistening.com, and it's all there in the, the footnotes for the episode. Uh, I had really hoped to get this one out before P Cal played a house show here in Cleveland last week. Uh, it was part of a, a little tour of the uh, mostly like, like the east, upper east side of uh, North America, uh, unfortunately, our schedules just didn't line up quite right to make it happen. The good news is that I was able to record the show, and today's episode will conclude with a couple of songs from that live performance. And just a quick reminder that this Wednesday, November 13th, is the deadline to sign up as a Patreon supporter at any level for a chance to win a signed copy of Snow White Zombie Apocalypse by Brenton Lengel, my uh, Halloween guest from uh, a week ago or so. Uh, this is the latest Patreon perk that I've introduced I'm calling uh, Swag Stakes. I don't know if you hate it tell me, whatever. But the point is, uh, once a month, I'm going to choose a supporter at random to receive some swag from uh, a guest. So to sign up, just visit bzlistening.com, click the Patreon link, It follow, follow along from there. It, it should be self-explanatory, I hope. Um, and lastly, I do want to apologize for the erratic publishing schedule since the show kicked back off a couple of weeks ago. I'm just, I'm absolutely buried in work uh, for the next few weeks, so I, I can't promise I'll be getting back to a really consistent schedule, but I can promise at least one episode a week. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening, and now here's my interview with Cal Folger Day. What is your um, sort of musical genesis? Um, 
Jesus. Um, <laughs> Just going um, swinging for the fences big. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very proud to say that I loved music from a very, very young age. And um, uh, I played, I was, I was in choirs and um, I... Um, sorry, I don't have a concise. I should work on a concise way of editing this. You know I was what? in choirs. I didn't. I didn't have particularly musical. There's, like there's there no wasn't rush. so much music at the house. Okay. Yeah, and um, <laughs> yeah, that's. What, I mean, usually, um, I'm curious whether it's it's variations of a lot of times there was someone in the family who um, was musical yeah. and that sort of rubbed off to some degree. I, you know, I think sometimes people are the black sheep. Yeah, I'm a little more of a. Um, of a black sheep. Um, I think that I like went way past both of my parents' expectations for um, how much I'd be invested in music. And where, where um, were you growing up? Where was I was this? born in DC and I lived there until I was eight. That's where both my parents were from. I moved up to the Boston area when I was eight with my mom. Um, so I have also spent many of the year up in new England and there are some fine points of the region, but I don't really identify with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, th- so that's, that's kind of where I was growing up. And I suppose I didn't, I was into very, uh, you know, I was a big dork and I was into very classical. Uh, I started studying piano eventually. And I was into a very, um, you know, I sang in church choirs. Um, I was into very um, conservative classical music until really until I was about 21. Um, so I, I kind of didn't go through, um, uh, I didn't go through an expressive subversive musical stage until like post adolescence. <laughs> hmm. So I, I always feel like I'm playing catch up a bit with people who were playing in bands or whatever for when they were teenagers. And that was kind of more a part of their idea of themselves and what they were familiar with. So I always feel like a bit of an interloper, but, but I also like went in hard. So, but you were no in shame. choirs and then, I mean, were you learning like the, how many, uh, what instruments were you? primarily focused I studied on piano. I just studied piano just piano um, yeah so that yeah. comes with that a lot of technique and then theory and you know what I've found like in a, one of my most recent discussions with um, a musician who's also interested in getting into programming and before the show we were talking about programming and I said mm. I've because I, I came to music just really, really late. Like when I met you when I was 30, I was a brand new baby musician. I was like uh, only a cool. year or less playing out um, yeah. and having had a guitar for a long time, but really just as like something to dick around on. Yeah. Um, but the I spent my time programming and, and we got into this sort of discussion about the the analogs of programming and music where it's like, well, uh, you know, I was telling them if you learn the fundamentals of one coding language and you learn it, learn it really yeah. well. And there's like logic and patterns and variables and all that. And, uh, that applies to any other coding language. And it's kind of yeah. like how, if you learn piano really well or guitar and you learn the fundamentals of chords and scales and, sh- and things like that, it can transpose to any instrument, or at least it gives you a foundation to like, well, you can just get into oh, the yeah, physicality absolutely. of it. Because you know Absolutely, what sound yeah. you want to hear because you know the theory of it. But I, I have, yeah. yeah so you, I, I think, you know, I get where you're saying as far as like, 
if you're just in that world of the technique and the theory, but not so much in the, like you said, the subversive expressive aspects of it, which is, I know that's the end, the, the scale I came to it from was just like, well, this is what mm-hmm. I can do. And I've, I'm more interested in, in being emotive and expressive and things like that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Things carry over. Um, and, um, it's not, yeah. I mean, there are even things about expression that carried that are true across all fields or something. And really what broke me out of, um, what broke me out of reading music, you know, I think it's funny. I'm, I guess, um, it's interesting to think about who's, who can read music. And that's one kind of like delineator between different types of musicians for me reading music um came very easily and like i still find it pleasurable to kind of like process visual information through my fingers you know like i'm very glad that i ended up being able to read Bach and beethoven and and then that's a part of how i can you know that translation process from black dots to sound works in my brain but i also envy people who that doesn't work for and so they turn to different um methods of remembering and storing and processing information. So it's not, that came easily to me. And in a way that stuck me in that rut for a while because, because I could do it. But um, what really started breaking things down was when I took um, a medieval music class in college and we went back to kind of the origins of the Western notation system. And I realized how arbitrary it was and, and th- and that was kind of the beginning of the that was kind of the balloon burst that started me down a slippery slope of um, just taking other forms of recorded music very very seriously. Whereas before I would have kind of saw that as a as a like a contemporary offshoot, you know, the whole recording industry of, of like what otherwise was music as opposed to like it. <laughs> So, I, so funnily enough, it was a very academic subject that really um, kind of spiraled me out of otherwise a pretty lockstep in, like engagement with making music. I got cold, wet fingers and cold, wet feet, head to toe and fast asleep. Dog was crazy when kicking up the leaves and the first come January. 
coldest days in February I'm gonna cross the river Jordan all by myself You on the other side, I ain't got nobody else But the ground was hard She's got warm blood outside my back door The ground is all new mud And the coldest days in February And so what was your gateway into, by the time I saw you playing, I think probably either first was at Mike Club or possibly Cat Weasel? Yeah. Um, yeah, that seems right. How, a sidewalk how, or something. Yeah, sidewalk possibly. How often or how far along onto this breakout of part of your journey <laughs> were you then? Well, I'm trying to I moved to um I studied abroad in in England for a year when I was doing an undergrad and um when so I was about so that's when I was 21. And I that's really where I started um playing out for the first time when I lived in England for a year. So when I came back to um, the States after that year, I moved to New York and started playing out then. So probably a couple years into it um, by the time uh, we ran across each other. Now, did you move to New York with um, like a specific like a goal delusions to accomplish it? Like, you know, del- whatever, what were your delusions of grandeur or did you have like, you know, I'm going to do this or this is what I want to get out of it sort of ideas of what your, what your, what your terms of success would be for living in New York? Um, New York certainly seemed like the center of the universe and, but, um, and then when you think it's the center of the universe, then New York likes to confirm that, you know, <laughs> for itself. Um, so, um, you know, I think that if New York itself hadn't been so keen on, you know, yeah, confirming that on a regular basis, I probably would have copped on a lot sooner that um, my reasons for going there were kind of shallow and off base. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in any case, I, I did. I, I lived in New York for five years and I loved it. And um, it it became not it, it became t- not really about the music. Although I suppose, in a way, living in New York is like being on tour or like all the time because you can play out a lot and there's a lot of people coming through and. Um, or it's like you know, it's a so place I'm, that where the world tours to you, and because that's certainly exactly. you stand you stand still and. One thing I wanted to ask you because I'm I, I'm fuzzy on the details and it seemed you were a bit closer to it. Can you talk a bit about uh, Cat Weasel and um, that the, was that a house hosted by an artist um, named Steve? I can't remember his name. Yeah, Steve Cannon. Um, Cat Weasel was actually the open. The, the name Cat Weasel comes from the um, the open mic I mentioned that I started playing out at in um, in Oxford in the UK where I was studying, and then we opened this kind of like New York chapter. Um, so. Um, Steve, I met Steve through Christopher Farrow, who's another songwriter. He's kind of moved, he's doing different things now, but anyway, he, Chris had also studied in Oxford. And so, and to be honest, I can't quite remember why Chris, um, got, how Chris got connected to Steve. Steve Cannon passed away this past spring. Um, 
at the age of 80, I think he was 86, yeah, but I he, could be wrong. Well, he, yeah, he was up there when and I, the few times I met him, so yeah. th- that he hung on till last spring, that's a, yeah, a sturdy he, he man. Yeah, re- he did really, really well. Um, I was living with him for a time at Tribes, which was his kind of salon um, gallery event space and also his private residence that's on right, Tribes. 3rd and Avenue C. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they put out an annual literary magazine, and um, he had events several days a week, um, poetry readings, um, jazz concerts. Um, and he had a lot of – he'd made a lot of amazing – well, he'd been a professor at Brooklyn College, and I think at City University um, he'd been a poetry professor. He's from New Orleans originally. Um, he went blind and retired um, – in his 60s. I know that he's actually, up until his death, he was working hard on a memoir. So I'd say that that's going to come out. Steve Cannon is his name. And there's a beautiful New York Times obit from, um, I'm trying to think, I think he passed away. And actually, just this past Sunday, they had his, um, they had his like, what do they call it? The mainline New Orleans funeral. So yeah, they brought up a brass band and had oh, a yes. parade in East Village. Um, so that was just this past Sunday, his memorial service. I think he passed away in June um, or in the early part of the summer. Um, and I saw him in January. I lived with him for a time, and um, and he's an amazing character. He was he was a little difficult to live with at the time. I'm proud to report that he went completely sober and even gave up cigarettes like towards in the last decade or so of his life. Pretty impressive. Oh, that was after I met him. I remember him chain smoking on the couch. That's, yeah, in yes. between acts. In between sips of vodka. <laughs> wow. So yeah, so I think he got a lot done. Um, he they were kicked out. Um, he was kicked out of that. He owned that building and but had to sell. But Mayor De Blasio intervened and got him a really nice place just around the corner on the ground floor, which made things easier, obviously him being blind. So, um, yeah, so that's how we, so we started running that space and then, um, it, it lasted, I think we kept it going for a year and a half or so. And then at the same time, sidewalk, um, the sidewalk open mic was temporarily on hold because of maybe renovations or I can't remember what's happening in the building, but in any case, then it became a kind of surrogate. It, it functioned as a kind of surrogate operation for a time. It had, yeah, it was just a nice little uh, open living room. Then there was a piano and mm-hmm. like, you know, clamp lamps off to the side, but like it gave it a nice little footlight feel too. Um, yeah. And it felt like a speakeasy kind of thing. I, I really, yeah. it was, it was one of the cooler, like, oh, wow, this is like some New York shit. <laughs> it definitely felt like some New York shit. Yeah. Um, Steve, Steve was some New York shit. Yeah. <laughs>
So yeah, I, I know. I and then I saw you a lot. I booked you for like I said, going back through archival footage at least three different carnivals. Um, oh Jesus! You, you also you 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 opened for the one time I had a celebrity on the bill. I had Mike Doty play a show, and your guys oh, yeah. were opening for him. Uh, that yeah. show was <laughs> kind of a disaster. Deb was pregnant though. There was there was a lot of fun highlights from that. She did hula hooping. Uh, oh yeah, shit. <laughs> um. Then uh, the next thing I kind of then then our lives became a blur once you know Dominic was born and then we were doubled down with Charlie and yeah. I just kind of spiral out of like seeing where people landed if they were if we could keep in touch yeah. easily we did or I'd see what they're up to on Facebook and then bam it yeah. seemed like you were you were out of town you were in uh, <laughs> I was out of town yeah so yeah. what prompted um, uh, your you did you go straight over to uh, Dublin. Yeah, um, I met my fellow Miles in New York, and we went back and forth for a long time. He's Irish, uh, and then it seemed like it was going to be easier to get. You didn't have to get married, basically, to get a kind of partner visa in Ireland. They had a like boyfriend girlfriend de facto relationship visa, so we thought that we'd apply for that so that we could continue putting off getting married for visa reasons, and. Um, then that was kind of our gateway into like many years of like unforeseeable complicated visa bullshit. So we did end up getting married at the Brooklyn County clerk's office. And then we um, kind of relocated permanently to Dublin um, just cause it's, it was cheaper and easier to get in there. And I also, I think neither of us really had an intention of leaving New York um, at all. I think we left like with an understanding that we'd be back right away and we weren't like, I'm done with this city at all. We didn't walk away with that. But once we got away kind of accidentally, like I realized that I've been sick. I had just kind of been sick a lot of the time in the city and I couldn't get better. And there were a lot of, after we got out, I realized I was glad to have, um, glad to be out. Um, so yeah, so we've been in, um, I've never been in Dublin for six years and, um, it's a very interesting time as an American to be living abroad. Um, Ireland is a very interesting place to live as a um, musician or an artist, I think, um, you know, like the the nation's logo is a harp it's very it's very um performance focused culture um it's uh 
uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that's, this is, this is a whole other. Well, no, I was going to say it's fun. It's fun watching you like go down my checklist of things to ask. Like, so as an American living in Ireland oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah. And what's been the transition like as a musician, it's been always been interesting to me. I remember, um, there was a artist, uh, I hope to have on the show in the future, Sarah Clash, who I met at, uh, I don't know if you ever crossed paths with her. I met about the same time as no. you. She was from Sweden and she talked okay. about how like there's a, a large like, you know, it's easier to be just a middle class musician, like the way their society mm. is structured and, and how like, you know, it's not like you're on the fringes and it's a but she said uh -huh. also like they didn't have the sort of scrappy open mic scene where like, you know, amateurs could come. It's like it was it was more like, oh, professionalized to a degree that oh, yeah. she she appreciated that about New York scene to some degree that like this I guess the scrappiness. Oh yeah, of that's it. interesting. Um, I'd say that I can imagine that Sweden. It's very easy for me to imagine that Sweden is um, more organized and regimented than anything um, in the, in Ireland has ever been. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they invented IKEA, and Ireland is like a. <laughs> cesspool of chaos but like in a in a very fruitful way but um there isn't even a line between musician and non-musician in irish culture for me anyway i mean I, that's probably a simplification but like you know i mean the classic scene of like everyone of like a session in a pub and everyone sings is like real <laughs> you know like <laughs> so the so and also people will have um, like lineage of families is often tied to, to music. And yeah, it is a completely different, um, it is a completely different place in the culture. Now it's also like a country that's less than a hundred years old. And um, you know, there's a lot of things that, and it's a, it's a, it was a third world country until the mid nineties. It doesn't, it's a non-industrialized nation. You know, there's never been any manufacturing industry there. It's, it was agricultural and now it is digital, but it, so they kind of bypassed the 20th century. Wow. Um, so it, so there's, there's a lot of, um, it's different. Um, it, it's very different and there's, and the, it's, it's the wealth that came to Ireland is only so recent that a lot of part of, um, you know, society isn't really built on a model where pe people are, it's not, it doesn't really have a wealth structure. I would say people, people, some people got money and that was 20 years ago and now they don't have any money again because <laughs> of the crash. And so you well, know, and wealth and inequality kind of, is kind of flatter than it would be in in America, even I'm if sure like the bar the is lower for like what's even wealthy. Yes. There's just so much less stuff. Um, it's an Island. Nothing was made there. Every single thing has to be brought to the Island. And there hasn't been a century of people having the buying power to bring things to the Island. So there's no, um, you know, it's, it's different. Housing stock is really different. Yeah, I mean, things that really gobsmack you when you first move there as a um, as a 
American on top of the universe, um, on top of history, time and all privilege is that, you know, like people don't like there's no instant hot water in most houses. So you have to if you want to take a shower, you put on you flip on the kettle in the wall for half an hour. Um, there's um, very few things are insulated. Most people sleep with hot water bottles at night. It's like a different place. <laughs> I was going back through your catalog since, and there's so many interesting things that uh, strike me. The the biggest of which is uh, your new quote verbatim pop opera, cool, The Woods and Grandma, <laughs> um, which yeah, is exactly. I, is that a, a 
type of show you've coined? I've never heard that before. Um, you know, I, I kind of like assumed that I'd hodgepodge it together. And then it, it's not even the case. There's actually um, a movie of a like a verbate, verbatim um, music or verbatim theater is um, like taking a transcript of a recorded um, you know, recorded speech and um, right. dramatizing it or setting it to music. And, and it, it's it didn't, not, um, I, I, well, I was just, I was just taking in that. Honestly, like I went to like Spotify and like, Oh, I'll start playing the most recent thing. And I'm listening to it. I'm like, this is, in, what are these lyrics? This is interesting. And then it wasn't until <laughs> yeah. later I went back and I, I read about it and I read, then I went on Bandcamp and I read the lyrics and I'm like, this is a transcript of like two old yeah. ladies talking to each other. And yes. that's, and then it struck me. It's like, ah, I'm not sure I can't fit all of this in the podcast. <laughs> and it, cause yeah. it seems like a whole thing to keep together. Um, the woods and grandma. Yeah. Yeah. Done, so yeah. Um, if you want to talk about I, that, I just wanted to set it up as far as like, um, that's your most recent release I found and then discovered there's this yeah. whole backstory to it. Yeah. Um, I guess I started, um, um, I, I suppose I felt like I kind of hit a wall with, with songs and I, one winter, which was maybe two winters ago, I, I found a play that I really liked by a writer called Juna Barnes, D-J-U-N-A Barnes. Um, and the play was called At the Roots of the Stars, and I set it to music. And in a way, that was the beginning of doing verbatim work because it because it's dialogue, you know, because I was setting dialogue to music. Or um, So that was a piece called That's the Roots of the Stars. And um, so it was like a long-form musical narrative piece, um, or in other words, like a pop opera, because the style isn't at all um, traditional opera, but it is music that kind of tells a story. So we toured with that piece in 2016, and um, we've got a live recording of it, and there's kind of other versions of it, but hopefully getting a fuller ensemble um, recording of that is going to be one of the next things that I get to. But then, um, by coincidence, I was looking for a television show on the poor Poorly, um, poorly organized Irish state um, radio and TV services app and happened across this archived radio interview that first aired in the mid-90s. Um, and the interview was with um, two women. They were 90 and 88, and they are the granddaughters of a figure called Lady Gregory, who's like a theater impresario and like cultural touchstone in Ireland at um, around the turn of last century. So she raised her granddaughters in the 19-teens and 20s in Galway in the west of Ireland. And then this interview was with them as old women remembering their childhood and uh it was just so funny you know i mean i think really i first grasped onto it because they were just funny and um there were a couple lines that were really good and um so then i ended up kind of transcribing the whole thing at the time i was doing some um just gig work transcribing interviews for like a documentary film company and stuff so i kind of had transcription on the brain so um, then I ended up, I didn't have at all a grand scheme when I started the project. I was like, I set a couple lines to music and I was like, man, it'd be funny if I included more of this. And then it kind of snowballed into the full thing, which is like maybe about 40 minutes of um, music transcribing this interview. So, and, and I've just done it. So that's the Woods and Grandma um, 
grandma referring to Lady Gregory and the interviews with um, Anna Catherine, her two granddaughters. And you have and, a, a full uh, like audio documentary about this project too. Yeah. So hilariously, I don't, don't want to make you cover all the same ground if um, it's yeah, a shorthanded, yeah. like you want to learn, go a deep in the, and it's, it's interesting how it's produced too. Was that cut together by the, the, the producers of that show or did you yeah. have a hand in that? No, I helped write it as well. My friend, um, uh, yeah, my friend Rachel Nequin, like we got a nice grant to do this project basically. Um, and it was my friend Rachel Nequin who, whose idea it was to produce a show kind of in that format. Um, but I suppose, I think we came up with the cooking show with this cooking show format, um, together. And part of it was because I just felt like, um, a lot of the work, I guess I really wanted to drill home that like a lot of, you know, she's like, let's do a show that examines your process of composition. And I just felt like it, the process of composition was just a series of very um, tedious and like very unglamorous tasks kind of over and over. And it's I, like and you staring sure. at like writing out like musical notation or phrasing at a desk or like hitting something on a piano for hours and, yeah, it's and it's not, so I do, I just I, I felt better about what I wanted people to walk away with is really anyone could um you know what like I just was home for a cold winter and it, it was a night but it was almost it's like playing sudoku or something you know it's it's a it's a task it wasn't I made up rules for myself in a game and then and then I finished playing the game but it wasn't um yeah, the, most of it is not very inspired, you know. <laughs> it's really, it's really very tedious. So that's kind of how we put. Now we got the money to produce the radio show and put the piece together because, of course, RTE, who had originally aired the interview, were very keen on making another radio program about an opera that had been written about their radio program in the first place. Um, so that was a selling point for RTE to get it back on um, the radio. So, so that worked in our favor. Um, it's it ended up being many lovely things have come out of those connections made again. The producer of the original interview, who's a man now approaching ninety himself, called John Quinn, um, produced a ton of programs um, in the nineties and earlier for RTE. And the current producer of Lyric, which is a kind of um, which is their channel for like both classical folk and alternative music um, kind of rediscovered this producer through our project now has done a whole series re-airing a lot of his, his programs. They went back into the archives and um, digitized them and have been re-airing them. So I'm really, um, I'm so pleased that that was, you know, I found it by accident and now RTE has kind of found it <laughs> by accident in its own archives. So I'm really pleased that, that some of the ripples that have come out of um, out of the happy accident. And and we met him and he listened to the radio program. And um, so, yeah, there's some, been some really nice. And then that program was nominated for a couple of awards, which is great for Rachel. And um, yeah, so, that, so it was fun to make that program. And in a way, because the music that I'm making, um, it's good to present it with the cushion of a backstory.
absolute heavens you can imagine The beginning of the nutwood And of course the paths weren't solid like this They may have been solid but not it like nowadays They were mosses Yes, they were bare There was none of these masses of growth They used to be these white and incredible They used to bring trees from abroad A lot of the trees they brought were from abroad Or brought in and planted They all seem to have like this climate They all seem to have like this climate very well, but they all seem to have lived very well. But they all seem to have very well. So we're looking to get, like, now there's a whole other new verbatim opera, which we just finished performing in the Dublin French Festival called Moondog and Irene, which is another um, another verbatim pop opera. And I'm hoping to premiere that one in the same format because it's good to have, it's good to have all the What's um, the source info. material for Moondog and Irene? Um Moondog and Irene is actually how she pronounces her name. Irene is my step-great-aunt-in-law, which is to say my husband's mother's second husband's aunt. And I <laughs> met her a couple of years ago um, at a family brunch. And um, she's from Sligo, um, which is where Miles, my fellow, is from, and had moved to New York with her husband in the 50s um, and kind of ended up by accident in a temp job in the textile industry, which she didn't end up having children and she stuck with the job and she became retired as the vice president of the cotton blends division of Burlington Industries, which supplies all the shirting material for HD Lee and Levi's, the jeans, jeans manufacturers. So um, she had a really interesting career over a lot of changes in the textile industry in the 20th century and then retired back to Sligo. So she'd also, like me, had kind of lived a, a double life between the two continents, but opposite opposite migration. Um, and I just met her at a brunch and she made like the first thing we said to each other, making small talk about having lived in New York City she said, you see one of everything in the city. And I was like, yep. She said, I used to see a guy outside my office in a Viking hat. And I said, you must mean Moondog. And she had seen him for years and didn't know that he was an avant-garde composer and um, recording artist. Um, you know, Moondog <laughs> put out records on the Prestige and Columbia labels and everything. Um, but she'd never... She just thought he was a, a a man on the street in a in a crazy costume, and a, a lot of the time he he was on the street. He was not performing; um, he was just listening, maybe. So, mm -hmm. um, I introduced her to his music in her late eighties, and um, that was kind of how our friendship began. So, I ended up interviewing her about her career, and I thought it was interesting that he was a kind of touchstone for our New York experiences, and that I would have been familiar with his music through my time in New York and getting to know um, 
getting to know maybe outside the box music from the area um, through my time there. And, and she had also run into him, but in a completely different capacity in her kind of corporate office job capacity. So, um, so the inner, so the piece is a really a, the transcription of this interview that I did with Irene. That's a, that, that's real. I love that you're going to, um, that is like source material or seeing that more like a, in like an oral history pro like project. Yeah. Um, those are always really cool to me. I, I want to do something more with, it's not quite on the vein of oral history, but I have a, a book that I inherited that was, uh, someone I'm related to a soldier. Um, and I want to kind of track down my family tree more, but he took this book yeah. of, of poems with him to the Philippines during world war one and wow. um, the very first poem uh, I did turn into a song, Passing the Buck. And all I really did was add like a little chorus to it. But it's just yeah. all about the, the chain of command. And then, you know, I go through it. And the, then there's ones that are just pages and pages and pages of, of almost like, you know, it's 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 prose, but it's set to like a rhythm and a rhyme, and the mm, and the handwriting yeah. is exquisite. It's the kind of thing where I'm like, should this be in a museum or somewhere instead of just my yeah. basement? Yeah. But uh, there's, I've been trying to figure out it, it, how much of it is his, and then how much of it mm -hmm. is just popular at the time. And and the thing is, if you wanted to bring your favorite poems with you to war, then you copied them out. Yeah. You had to write them all down and keep them in your book. Yeah. But yeah, that's so interesting. It's the same sort of thing where, uh, you know, whatever the sources are of a lot of these things, um, it could, there's a, a lot to mine there as far as especially song potential. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, well, there's, these people are like all around us and, you know, there's you don't have to go very far. <laughs> so um, what kind of show are you bringing around on the tour then? Uh, you're also playing along with... Uh, Ben, she ben Shepard, who I hope to uh, see for the first time and then hopefully do an interview with him in a future episode. Yeah, uh, he's great. Um, this is, I think, me and Ben's third or even fourth tour. You should probably figure out what it is. Um, I, um, I'm i mostly doing a solo set with ukulele and drum machine because that's what fit on my no-check bag flight over from Ireland. And I... Um, and I'm making it work, and it's really fun. Some I do a couple pieces from the past couple of verbatim operas, but then I also have been doing just new um, independent kind of one-off verbatim pieces from different from different various sources. Um, and then we have, um, um, and then happily um, uh, another singer from Dublin who happens to be moving to New York at the minute um, was able to join us for the tour. He's also a videographer and filmographer and um, his name is Bob Gallagher. So he's singing with me on a few things. Um, and then uh, totally separately, Benjamin Shepard is a songwriter out of Richmond, Virginia, and he is playing with his guitar player, Kevin Guild. And um, they're doing, you know, like a set of original music and, um, Ben is a terrific songwriter and we always have a great time on tour. So this is just um, a solo tour. We're on the road for about 10 days. Um, I was here with my full band from Ireland in January and we did the whole Woods and Grandma soundtrack for a couple weeks around. Um, so that was really fun. And then it's also really fun to pare it down and um, do kind of a new, a set of new things, um, hodgepodge things and, 
how soon do you think you're, uh, how far off is uh, the full production of Moondog and Irene? Well, we just did it. Um, we did a full band show and we had like dancers and it was terrific in the Dublin Fringe Festival. And um, we like I flew to the States on Halloween. And for the week before that, we were in the studio working on a full studio soundtrack recording of that show with the band in Dublin. So um, that'll come out sometime early in the next year, I'd say, as we finish it up. And hopefully we'll be back on the road doing that or i guess when you make a record you're supposed to be playing that stuff so <laughs> probably playing that stuff sometime early next year too um tonight's set is going to consist of tunes that fall into one of two categories one are what you might call songs <laughs> the, other, <laughs> the other um is what you might call um verbatim pop opera which is to say that I've took mostly transcriptions of recorded interviews either that I've recorded or other people have recorded and then set them to music. So it's like every syllable from the recording gets preserved and set to music. So we're going to kick off with one of those. It's a tune called Terry and the French Fries. Um, it takes place in Austin, Texas in the late 1960s. It's a tale of love and snacks. There we go. <clears throat> in 1968. I went away to the University of Texas, which was just down the road from San Antonio, but seemed like a thousand miles to me. Her name was Terry, T-E-R-R-I Schmidt, and she was a freshman cheerleader at the University of Texas. I had to find some differentiator, you know, something that will make me unique. The hours for the girls were 10 o'clock on weekday nights, 12 o'clock on Friday night, and 1 o'clock on Saturday night. It was 20 after 9, and I was at home and I called her on the Which I can put paper towel in And a little container for the mustard ketchup Took my little ten speed And I went as fast as I could to campus Now it's ten minutes before curfew Terry Schmidt, please Would you just tell her Ben Smiley's down here She comes down here once in curlers, you know said, what is it? And I said, well, open it. I have cut French fry letters that said, I love you, Terry. Now she couldn't believe it, okay, that her wish was French fries and she made, I love you, Terry, French fries. And we were alone. Six weeks or however long you can be <laughs> in love when you're 18. 
That really happened And that's the story of Terry and the French fries <laughs> Right, so sometimes I some, some of these are kind of like scraps of little verbatim pop operas Mostly the operas haven't been written yet But I actually have done three pop operas that are full lengthish about um, dead ladies, which is why I sell dead lady tote bags. Um, this next um, couple of song batch is from the more recent one. It's called Moon Dog and Irene, and the source material is an interview with my step-great-aunt-in-law Irene Nally, which is to say my husband's mother's second husband's aunt. Beautifully modelled over there by Kevin. Not a dead lady, but an aspiring candidate. <laughs> um, um, right. Um, Irene moved from Sligo, which is a small town in the west of Ireland, to New York in 1958. Um, she didn't end up having children, and instead ended up in a decades-long career in the textile design industry, retiring in 1991 as the vice president of the Cotton Blends Division of Burlington Industries which supplies all the shirting material to Levi's and H.G. Lee. Um, so she oversaw a lot of change, many decades of changes in um, corporate culture and um, textile industry. So the show's about that. Um, I'll do one and then I'll do another. So this is all the words of Irene. Mm -hmm. 